Tonight on Piers Morgan Uncensored, he's a Hollywood hero who swapped the red carpet for the front line of a war. Two-time Oscar winner Sean Penn for the hour at Uncensored. Good evening from London. Welcome to another uncensored blockbuster, Sean Penn, one on one. He's an actor, a filmmaker, an all round Hollywood badass. I'm talking to you. You're talking to me? Yeah. Yeah. On the big screen. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. He's won plaudits and two Oscars. I. I did, I did not expect this. For his powerful performances. This is my daughter! He's won both fans and enemies for his powerful political views. Sean Penn is an arrogant and self-involved person. His latest movie is a documentary superpower, which charts Russia's brutal war on Ukraine. Penn found himself trapped in Kyiv on the very day Putin's forces invaded, where he came face to face with a president under siege. So, now, with a new war raging in the Middle East, there's a powerful message for the world. It's emotional, thought-provoking, controversial. It's all very Sean Penn, and it's very uncensored. And Sean Penn joins me now. Sean, great to see you. It's been quite a while, ten years, I think, since I last interviewed you. Yeah, about that. We're in a world of self-identity. Are you here identifying as an actor, a humanitarian, an activist, or something else? Yes. Good question. I suppose I'm here identifying as somebody who'd like to get eyes and ears on this film, Superpower, and, and, uh, and a continued conversation on our obligations to Ukraine. The, the film, I've watched it twice. I think it's a great film. Thank you. And it couldn't be more timely because due to events in the Middle East with the Israel-Hamas war, a lot of global attention has moved away from Ukraine. And President Zelensky, who I know you know well, and I went to Kiev and interviewed him myself, is very concerned that while the world looks away, Vladimir Putin will accelerate his attempt to effectively take as much of Ukraine as he can get. How perilous do you think this moment is for Ukraine? I think the way I equate it is how perilous is it for mankind in our general um, mission focus be that with our families or with the world at large. There are not too many distractions available to get us off course if we don't let there be. The concerns in the Middle East are, of course, very real and great. But with, with the principles intact that it, those in the world who believe in, in freedom, whether, whether you call it democracy or something else, <clears throat> We're not given more to do than we're able to do. And I think it's just the, the, the micro stuff and the breaking down of each other in all of this is really the distraction that we should worry about. Obviously, that's manipulated by enemies. It was never... I never felt that, uh, for example, President Putin's trip to Tehran was strictly about drones. And I do believe that there was an influence on what happened October 7th uh, in Gaza and in, in, in Israel. Uh, that, that, that that too was influenced by this. So these things have connections, and, and so to defeat those things and for freedom to triumph is to be able to maintain focus on both and the other issues of the day. Do you see parallels between what's happening in Israel and Gaza and the Ukraine-Russia war? Well, of course, there are certain parallels. Um, you know, the... <clears throat> 
the wanton disregard for, and in fact, proactive attack on civilians, on children, on infrastructure. And, and, and the biggest parallel, I suppose, the, most, the one I think we could spend our time most productively focusing on is the way in which, and this extends to so much else, the way in which uh, nuance is not allowed into the conversation. Mm. Now, what's not a parallel in the case of, you know, what's not nuanced at all in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, or rather Russia's criminal invasion of Ukraine, is that's a very um, unambiguous set of circumstances. It's a very clear um, black hat involved here, a, a black hat against all our human principles with Russia's uh, uh, horrible and, and, and misguided invasion and all the murder and all of the taking of children and re-educating of children to hate their parents and their country and things we just shouldn't stand for as any sing single section of it. My sense is that, and I'm not an expert on the Middle East, but my sense is certainly that they're, with, with the horror of what Hamas has done, that to get to a productive result for Jews, for Israelis, for Arabs in Israel, for Arabs in Gaza and the West Bank for, and, and around the Middle East, we might not like it, but it's going to take a very nuanced conversation. And, 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 and the sooner we get to it, the better. And the more push there is or resistance to that conversation, it will historic, the legacy will be that those who pushed against the nuanced conversation would have been the ones to have extended the problem. You recently told Variety magazine before what's just blown up in the, in the Middle East, if you'd been US president after 9-11, you'd have done things differently. He said, if I have to go to prison, I'll go, but I'm going to kill them. I'm killing everyone that did this, but only then. And we know where the Fs they are, where the F they are. In the context of that gut response that you had to 9-11, do you understand why Israel has reacted the way it's done, even if you don't endorse it? But do you understand their desire, their fervent need as a country to go after Hamas and eliminate the people that perpetrated the, the terror attack. Were Hamas living in remote mountains of Tora Bora, I, I, I would have absolutely understood it. But when you have a place like, uh, you know, topographically similar, let's say it's Malibu, California in size and scope, and uh, although a hundred times more populated, you know, when we think of Gaza, we do have to understand, take, without taking a side, being a defender, apologist for anything, those children are hearing every gunshot throughout the country, yeah. are feeling every ordinance that drops. This is 24-7. It's, this is a tiny place packed with people. That's very different. I, I, I would say absolutely I would like to see Hamas evaporated in mountains like Tora Bora, as perhaps could have Al-Qaeda at that time. If you do a, a constant bombardment for many weeks, as the way the Israelis have done, you're going to kill thousands and thousands of completely innocent children. Mm. And I find that morally repugnant that that's happening. Mm. And yet I defend their moral right to go after Hamas. It's, it's a really... It's a difficult situation, isn't oh, it? It's very difficult. Of course, one has to be very aware. You know, that could have been my my daughter or son at that music festival, for example. I mean, it. I understand 
the immediate reaction to that, even the long-term reaction to it. But again, we we do have to also say, well, it's somebody else's children next time. And when I brought up, when I said that I felt that, you know, that I had had a dream that President Bush might just say, I'm sending the White House counsel home. This has to be done. We'll suffer the consequences later in Tora Bora with Al-Qaeda. I also said that I that having done that, he might have licensed himself to then go back in time and say, in what ways? Again, we know this is these are the kind of things that people love to chew apart. In what ways did we was were we complicit in the poverty, in the hopelessness, in the oppression of a people somewhere else, in the lack of inclusivity of those people that contributed to, to, to that hatred? That, that came our way. So in this case, too, there's, there are the big differences. One is the civilian population of Gaza, and the other is the, that we are told not to speak about the accountability of Israel and the United States in their support of Israel, uh, in many ways unconditional support. And you know, I'm a 48% Ashkenazi Jew. Right. Um, I have uh, I, 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 nothing but love for my ancestry and ancestors. That doesn't have anything to do with the fact that I think that while Israel's people were criminally, horrifyingly attacked, that Israel also has a prime minister who is a terror. Uh, by any measure of basic political thinking. That's bad timing. You think he's an actual terrorist, Netanyahu? Well, I didn't say terrorist. Mm. Um, I wouldn't necessarily jump to say that because I think the... I don't know that he's trying to create terror so much as he's trying to create an inflated sense of his own worth in his time. Mm. Your father, uh, the actor-director Leo Penn, Uh, as you said, an American Jew of Eastern European descent, also a highly decorated war veteran. He served as a tail gunner and bombardier in the B-24 Liberator with the US Air Force in World War II, actually stationed here in England. And, of course, was fighting the Nazis, which were an existential threat to civilization at the time. You know, many Israelis say what they're going through now is the worst existential threat to what happened to them in the Holocaust. Um, your dad was an amazing guy. Life expectancy for the role that he played in that war was seven missions. He did 37. He did. Is that where you get this warrior spirit from? <laughs> uh, I, I would only aspire to. Um, I've never been tested like that. Uh, yeah, but he is uh, the hero in my, uh, my experience. Yeah. What, would he, what would he, do you think, have made of what's happening now with Israel? And what advice would he give them, do you think, to try and get to a better place? My dad used to have an expression when I would come home very opinionated on one issue or another and very angry at anyone who believed differently. He would say, you know, everyone has their own truth, kid. And I think his advice would be for people to recognize what is true of each other's position. And then it's also important to recognize what is a lie that one... That that group thinkers tell themselves to be comfortable and to have a group and an identity. And I think this extends, again, to the, the broader cultural picture of a lot of what's um, distracting from 
us getting down to the things that will help our world be better. You've been very scathing of America's lack of what you think is proper support, particularly with Ukraine, with regard to their ability to control the air. You would like to have seen America supply F-16 fighters and so on. Why do you feel so strongly about that? We need to step up. Every day is another opportunity. Um, the Ukrainians are certainly uh, ready to fight the fight. They've never asked for our troops to be on the ground or in the air. And there's been a lot of sort of smoke and mirror talk about how long it would take, whether there were the maintenance crews available. There, there's actually been workarounds available on that from the very beginning. And, and within the first months of the war, there could have been F-16s without... Also, there's a betrayal of the Ukrainians with nuclear weapons. We made them give theirs up. Right. If they had had those nuclear weapons, I don't think Putin would have countenanced invading. Right. But he knew he could invade a non-nuclear power with impunity... But if they'd been able to keep their weapons, they wouldn't have been a non-nuclear power. And, and Americans should know, particularly, you, you know, we did sign the Budapest Memorandum. And that did assure Ukraine that if they gave up those weapons, Russia, the United States, and the, other, and, and, and the others involved would never even threaten uh, intervention or violence against the country. I've got a clip. This is from a 2001 Moscow Film Festival. You and Jack Nicholson actually meeting... Vladimir Putin. Have you been to Russia? In 2001, Jack Nicholson and I had a film at the Moscow Film Festival. That night has become a deviant memory. A deviant memory. What is your memory of that meeting? I remember this was approximately two weeks after the famous meeting between President Bush and, and Putin, mm. um, where President Bush said something like, you know, I looked him in the eye and I knew I could trust him. I, I didn't come away with a great, imp uh, I don't mean a good or bad impression, a, a deep impression at the time. He was, uh, you know, a, a bit of a, a, a poker-faced fellow, uh, talked about, his kids, there was, there was no politics discussed per se, but when I talk about it as a deviant memory, you know, I look at that. And now, you know, world, uh, head of state uh, aside, world politics aside, I'm looking at somebody who's, you know, cutting off babies' heads. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't like having been next to that. I don't know if you've got it on you now, but for a long time you carried a card in your wallet uh, by the great Armenian-American author, William uh, Serain. And there was a quote from this, I think, part of a lengthier quote, but there's a bit that says, despise evil and ungodliness, but not men of ungodliness or evil. These understand. Have no shame in being kindly and gentle, but if the time comes in the time of your life to kill, kill and have no regret. It's a powerful quote. It is, yeah. I don't think I knew what it meant, really, until, like I said, as you said, I carried that around forever. It, it made some visceral impact on me, and... I could tell, I could I recognize the kind of the rhythm of the thoughts in a way that was provocative, more provocative, say, than anything I'd, I'd read in a short form like that. And so I, I, I kept it with me, thinking I knew what it meant, but sort of like the way an onion gets peeled, it wasn't until I got to Ukraine where I really felt like, okay, now I understand this thing. Does any part of you understand, as he wrote there, about Putin, clearly a man of evil, many would say, I certainly would, um, but if you're playing 
devil's advocate trying to get into his brain, mm -hmm. do you understand why this guy thought the breakup of the Soviet Union was the worst thing that's ever happened to his country, uh, felt like the NATO encroachment, as he saw it closer and closer to the Russian border, was a threat to the Russian people? I mean, do you, does any part of that make any sense to you, or do you think it's just an excuse for his land grab? It's what I call kind of the bulb-no-bulb -bulb people. You see the light of humanity in some people. I, 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 so whatever the sort of speculation is, and I've read some of the histories of Putin and seen some of the documentaries, and I've certainly listened to better brains than mine uh, talk about that and sort of analyze him. I think essentially what this is is an unimaginative person, someone who, whose bulb either never got fully put on and therefore was not distracted by the colors of life that the rest of us uh, embrace. Donald Trump says he would resolve this war in 24 hours. I think in the United States, Donald Trump is guilty most of being an um, adolescent uh, um, influencer of cheap and cheap thought. And cheap thought is very expensive. It's, it, er, er, again, I go back to what America should be searching for in a Democrat or a Republican. It's an aspirational figure, not someone you hang your, your lowest denominator. You went on Sean Hannity's show on Fox News, which I thought was a really interesting moment. When you did that, that's a big deal for you to do that. I mean, you're going into what I guess would have been historically a kind of media enemy's lair. Yeah. But you were prepared to do that, to have that debate. And it was a very interesting interview, actually. While there's incredible influence by media figures, by political figures, um, if somebody has had no experience with real bomb throwers, perhaps they should hold that, that phrase and come up with something uh, more particular to what their concern is. Because it, it just makes it, again, an extra, it's, it, it's a, you know, exaggerated and, or, or, or just a perversion of what's really going on. I don't know about you, but most people I talk to, once you get it off the standard conversation of policy or personality mm. around the world, they want the same thing. Mm. They want a better world for themselves and their family tomorrow. They want education for their kids. It's, it's the most common And they could be quite reasonable. However unreasonable yeah. they may have sounded, and yeah. you get, when you get past that, you can have a, what used to be perfectly normal conversation in a free democratic society. Right. Uh, but now we're in a world where cancel culture is a very real thing. Right. And, you know, you know better than anyone the dangers of this. What happened to your father, who was ostracised by Hollywood mm -hmm. when he wouldn't throw his friends under the bus when there was that huge, you know, what was it, the, the big investigation into whether, whether they were communists or whatever it may be. He refused to take part in that, and he never really got his career back as a result. That was cancel culture. And, of course, he played Harvey Milk, again, a perfect illustration of what a world can do when it wants to cancel people. Mm -hmm. Now it's so much more prevalent now. Yeah. It's like people get cancelled for having an opinion, for just saying what they honestly believe about stuff. Yeah. How have we got there? I, I say I would, you know, I'm a little bit borrowing from Stephen Fry here. He, he, he gives this great closing argument at the end of a monk debate on political correctness. And I think... Maybe 
and it will seem ironic that, that I respond this way, maybe we've taken ourselves too seriously. And Have you included? Uh, at, perhaps at the forefront many times. <laughs> <laughs> you said that you fly a big American and Ukrainian flag at your home in Malibu. Mm. You said, I'm a big proponent of the idea we start waving flags again, even if we're on the left, and we don't worry that our neighbours are going to think we suddenly became a MAGA hawk, which is what some of my friends accuse me of. So just for having an American flag flying. Yeah, but again... That apparently the, is now offensive. The left will have... The left. A lot of friends of mine... It, 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 well, you know, we got to take the flag back. Mm. Or we got to share it again. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that countries find true unity often in the worst possible circumstance. You know, I felt that when I went to New York after 9-11, it felt like the whole country was united right. in that moment in a way I hadn't seen America probably in my lifetime. Similarly, I think, you know, you had the same experience with Haiti and how the Haitians came together. I certainly felt it, I think you did in Ukraine, that the Ukrainian people were just almost completely as one yeah. in, in their desire to save their country, preserve their freedom, back their president. That wasn't the case before the war started. No, but um, all the more, I mean, as important as our support of them to, to, to dominate this, to, to return their freedom and sovereignty to themselves and to rebuild their country, is, is the long-term plan. This is the opportunity for mankind, for all free thinking people. But why people. can't we unify... Is, is yeah, sorry. Yeah. That we remember that once that's resolved, we have to have the spirit and resources in place for it to be the example of it continuing mm. beyond them unified under war. But that was the if question I was going to ask you. the leading example. Why do we find it so hard to continue the unity when we get back to a more peaceful time? I think, I think unities are cannibalized first by those who are promoting unity. I think we've, you know, things blow up from the inside of an idea. And, you know, I think even, I think even with the, in the case of Russia uh, after 1994, you know, I remember the relief. The Cold War is over. People are dancing. I never. I don't think we ever looked back and noticed that the Russians were not feeling the relief mm. that the world was feeling, mm. and that gangsterism had replaced communism, and the breadlines were just as long, and uh, they mm. were. It was, things didn't get better for them, and. You let that happen over time and somebody like Putin is able to come back, take power and do what he's doing. We need strong leadership, never more so than from America. Does it worry you, the thought that Trump may win again? Because nothing they're throwing at him seems to make any difference. In fact, it all seems to increase his popularity, all these indictments and so on. I know there's a lot of speculation that he may and a lot of speculation that he may not. I think that uh, my concern would... If I could, I'd like an X-ray of who we are in America today, is that really possible? Because before Trump, that would be the problem. If, we, if we're still ready to let everything we stand for and everything my father's generation and those before stood for, and I don't mean that they accomplished all their tasks for everybody, we know that never happened, and that we hope it still can. But if we go soft and yellow and decide we're gonna let it go and let this guy as Judge Souter once said, take the ball and roll with it. Um, then, you know, I'm going to have to find my pride in a glass of vodka. Might take more than one glass of vodka, sure.
time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Let's talk about superpower. It's fascinating to me that this began, this movie, as a much lighter film that you wanted to make about this extraordinary story of a guy who was an actor, a comedic actor predominantly. Um, you know, he'd been seen playing the piano with his penis on a special on TV for the delectation of Ukrainian people, and they all laughed. Um, then he takes part in this, in this series called Servant of the People, where, as a comedic actor, he ends up becoming president of Ukraine. Right. And we got a clip. Such a powerful clip, that, because it's so prescient. Because this guy then becomes the real president of Ukraine and very quickly has a very bad guy and other bad guys coming to take his country. Uh, And in that moment, your whole film that you've been making, which is a light, fun look at a guy who's a comedy actor and you're an actor and you think, this is fun, Mm -hmm. and then it gets incredibly serious. And you as a filmmaker, for you as an actor... What did you make of all this? Well, personally, it, it, it's one more time where I could say, you know, I try to be light and then pull <laughs> me back in. You, you know, we here we really it's did. It's like Al Pacino in Godfather 3. <laughs> Suck right. me back in. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I take it back a little bit to when we were talking about President Biden. It, it is... There's a... You know, this is somebody who has... An extraordinary person of service for so long. Understands the game very deeply. The process, the bureaucratic process. And I think has a lot to offer. This situation was, it was so, um, you know, we met President Zelensky the first time. I had had said, because of what I thought could be a value-added documentary that I could make versus some accomplished documentarian or journalist, uh, that, that that it's always been a, a kind of a trust and trustworthiness bond, and maybe it would be a different kind of conversation. I don't, and therefore, I didn't want to have a camera available the first time we, we met face-to-face. And it was just a crazy coincidence of timing that we met the first time on the 23rd without a camera. Literally the day before the war starts. Right, and agreed that on the 24th, we'd do our first session with a camera. And unbelievably, he sees you. He, he fulfilled the commitment despite the rockets coming in. We've got a clip of this. 
Where, where does it end? I mean, what does he want? What does he? What is the? He wants to. He wants. He wants us to be dead. He 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 hate Ukraine. He he, he hate us, and we, we don't know why. I mean, it's incredible. The war starts, and he takes time to see you. And no offense, but Sean Penn, you're an actor. Yeah. Were you surprised he kept that meeting? And why do you think he did? I was surprised. Of course, I was surprised. Um, you know, we were all processing a. a the tragedy of, of this unimaginable decision of Putin's. Um, today, I, I understand it better. Uh, I think he's very savvy. Uh, I think that any opportunity to have a record of... I think he believed in what he was going to do and what his people were going to do. So much so that in a country at war, we were never uh, watched over when we were shooting. We never had a minder. There was never a word of influencing anything. Really? He knew how important America would be, and he thought using a Hollywood superstar, Oscar, multiple Oscar winner, would shine a light right when he needed it to get help from America. That's, right. that's a guy who understands the media, understands politics, possibly from playing a president in a comedy. I mean, it's surreal the way you guys came together like this. Yeah, and another way to look at it is, you know, you know, when I'm, remember, I've been very focused and had a lot of responsibility. I'm not comparing it to the responsibility he has, but, but I've had responsibilities in certain situations to a lot of people and sometimes to their physical well-being. And, uh, you know, you do find that moment where your bandwidth needs to step outside and have a cigarette. It may be that, you know, he used this opportunity. I was say he stepped outside and essentially had a cigarette. Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that it's like he took time out of fighting a war. He to... was also, Sean, at the time, on that day, the number one target in the country yeah. for Putin. It was a moment <laughs> yeah. when you go to the front line. This is about four months later. And a woman says this to you. It's uh, about 10 kilometres from zero position. That's the priority. Can I be very blunt? You're Sean Penn. Nobody's going to be responsible for you dying on the front line. I mean, that's the moment when you hear that, because that's completely true. The front line doesn't care who you are or how many Oscars you've won. You end up 150 metres away from Russians across a river. Um, notwithstanding, you've been in a few hairy situations in your life. That... That must have been a, a seriously unnerving moment, wasn't it? Of course, I took a deep breath at some point before we went in. But I, I also felt that, you know, and what's here, um, I, I think quite graciously, that, that voice who was uh, working as a translator with us, she, she you know, offered an abundant, uh, abundance of caution. Um, but again, it's almost an embarrassing thing to... to I, I understand the question, and, you know, there's some versions of, of this I could say differently, but... You know, when I think of people who are staying there in that fight, uh, you know, versus parachuting in for a second and getting a little bit of a story and, and, and going out, I, I don't really know how to talk about that. There's a moment Can when I you be... go to an apartment block. This is in your first visit after the war started. 
in June. And you see the devastation for yourself of an airstrike that had happened just a few hours before. And what was particularly telling for me uh, as I watched you do this was I suddenly realised that this was the same apartment block I'd gone to a month after you when I did a show or two shows from, from Kiev and walked in, I'm pretty sure, the same apartment block. Mm. Um, and I don't know how you felt when I... But I, I felt just... I'd never been in that kind of... You know, I'm not a war correspondent. I don't normally go to places like this. And just to see the utter devastation of just, in that case, one person's life. Yeah. It's not just frontline soldier to soldier. No. It is the constant barrage of civilian life and ordinary people. It's all the works. families that have been separated for two years while the men stay mm -hmm. to, to fight the fight or support the fight in, in country and the mothers and the children who are spread out all over the world, some you know, you know, with no promise of anywhere or anything to go or any support, and in some cases getting you know, otherworldly support. Poland in particular mm -hmm. was, you know, both the civilians and the leadership were extraordinary uh, toward them. Uh, but still, that's walking out into a brave new world and, and you, you know, just worrying every day about your brother or your father, or your son who's in the fight. You dedicate the film to Ukrainian fighter pilot known as Juice. He was the leader of the fabled Ghost of Kiev unit, which didn't actually exist in the way people thought, but he was an unbelievably good pilot and he very sadly died three months ago yeah. in a training exercise. You see in the movie, you take him to see Top Gun Maverick He's a real-life Top Gun. You saw it in Washington when you were lobbying for F-16 jets. Um, and he's now one of the 100,000 Ukrainians who died in this war, um, including, I think, 13,000 civilians. Tell me about him for a moment. I mean, the impact he had on your life. Well, I'd like to say we became friends. We, we kept in touch after we spent time in Washington. I, I might... Uh... You know, we'd be on an encrypted line that he was okay with, and I might, you know, say, "Hey, you know, what's happening?" He said, "Just about to go wheels up," and he'd be because they were they were constantly in the fight. Um, he was a very poetic creature, you know, not what you would expect of a Top Gun, essentially Top Gun fighter pilot. Uh, he was a great leader. He's a guy who believed. He owed his country's service. He's not, he was a, yeah, sort of personality-wise, the furthest thing you'd, you'd think from a military man and, and uh, a beautiful spirit uh, and, and great humor. He, you know, most people know that movie, Top Gun Maverick, and when we were watching it in D.C., uh, I was sitting next to him, and he, he leaned over at one point after Tom Cruise had ejected uh, and and uh, found his way in his mm -hmm. dusty flight suit yeah. to the, to the to the diner, and he leaned over and he said, "That's why I always take my wallet." <laughs> <laughs> how did you How nice. did you find out that he died? So, um, somebody I, I no, I don't know. I mean, if he would mind my saying his name, you can assume who it is. From, let's say the civilian now, mm. someone who had worked in government, who would have known anything the New York Times knew by the time the New York Times knew it. Anything where you collect open source material. And a per very credible person um, called me middle of the night and said, no, because I'd introduced the two of them in DC mm. and knew that I would want to know and said this happened. And then I double checked it with the uh, Ministry of Defense in Ukraine and they came back and said, yeah. Sad moment for you. 
Yeah. Well, he's a but sort of like what you're talking about with the apartment, right? It's it's personalized. Yeah. And it's personalized tens of thousands yeah. of times. You you were angry when the academy, uh, just after the war blew up, decided not to let Zelensky speak at the Oscars. And then, of course, that Oscars became known for the Will Smith, Chris Rock punch up on stage, which you don't think would have happened if Zelensky had been allowed to speak, because the idea of someone then committing an act of violence publicly at the same event would have been unthinkable. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, look, there, there was it, what what are films? You know, it's not just the celluloid you print them on. It's bigger medicine than that. You know, it can be. Uh, and so they're, they're ideas. They're stories. What more cinematic idea or story is, is there? Or more identified with film, a film star also, a filmmaker, Zelensky. What's more appropriate at that moment in time to address the Academy Awards? He had no intention of being um, partisan politics in the United States. It was really to talk about the value of cinema and to thank all of those around the world that were supporting and, and the Academy. That's what he, he would have shared. And that they traded that for, I guess, the karma of what happened with Will Smith. It, 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 you know, you look at Will Smith, whose performance was great. As King Richard. <laughs> Just, I mean, it's, why Amazing, yeah. this petty kind of thing happens? I was in, I was back, uh, and, and I'm part of the trip that was more related to my organization, CORE, it, back in Ukraine, and at this point in Lviv when that happened. And I, you know, literally, I felt. Were you watching I feel, it? Uh, no, I couldn't, wasn't watching it, but I heard about it in the morning after and saw the clip, and, and I literally felt something like safer in Ukraine than Hollywood watching it, you know, mentally. How, it just seemed so small. And, and, and when you, in your earlier incarnation, punched somebody, you got a 60-day jail sentence, yeah. served half of it in prison. <laughs> yeah. Will Smith goes back up to receive the Best Actor Award after whacking somebody at the Oscars live and gets an ovation from the audience. Yeah, that ovation should be... I, I, that, that should be played on this show a lot of times, too, because the shame on them, you know, it, it's... So, yeah, I, I just felt that that was a, a, a very low moment in, uh, in, in whatever, the leadership of the Academy and denying this thing, having, mm. you know, or the producer of that particular show being so of, of, of such um, lack of substance. Uh, it, 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 it was uh, discouraging, yeah. You um, were so angry about this. You wanted to melt down your two Oscars for bullets for Ukrainian soldiers to use against the Russians. And in the end, you didn't do it, but you gave one of your Oscars to President Zelensky, but on loan, and you said, when this war's over, bring it back to Malibu. And we've got a clip of what you'd like to do when you see him after this war ends. <laughs> I really hope that when he's an old man, 
and I'm an even older one, that I might be sitting with him in a peaceful and prosperous free Kiev, laughing like a couple of kids at what William Soroyan called the infinite delight and mystery of life. It's a lovely thought, um, but you must have had quite a few moments, not least when you left Kiev that first time on the day war had broken out and you were able to leave and he was left there, that you might never see him again. Of course. Yeah. It was, a, it was, it was it creeped up on me by surprise because, you know, when you're in, when you meet somebody who's in circumstances that reasonably could end in any way, any way you can imagine. And where there were such clear intentions by, you know, our, it's understood that there were Chechen kill squads in the streets of Kiev who were targeting he and his family at that time. So they, it was coming at it from all angles, the potential targeting of government buildings, <clears throat> snipers, everything. And that he was this target, you, you know, you, 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 you make a decision faster, emotionally. And, and I, I recognize my affection for him. So I felt, I can't speak for him in this, he had a lot of things to respond to, but I felt a, a, a friendship, at least from my side, like a, a bond. And when we left, it suddenly hit me. What did I do that for? What did I open myself up to that for? Because I, and it was, yeah, it was a real uh, worry. Has he seen the movie? Yeah. As a filmmaker, he had the patience to watch the whole thing. And so we walked into the office. Uh, it, this is some time after, I don't know, we'd made several trips. I'd seen him several times before this. And this was the trip we were making to show him the uh, a rough cut for the first time. And so he, he, he saw it sometime between 6 and 7 o'clock in the morning before starting this day. And we saw him at about 4 in the afternoon. And when we came into the office, he's standing there looking at me and he said, I bet you're glad I watched the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you were, too. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was. Because I was. <laughs> you've been accused, obviously, there's too much of you in the movie and so on, but you make a joke of that several times, you know, about you're not trying to be Walter Cronkite and they liken you to Raoul Rear and so on. You're, you're seeing that joke, but at the same time, you're also aware you wouldn't have got the movie off first base if you weren't front and centre with this. It wouldn't mm. have happened. Yeah, and, and, you know, again, it had to do with recognizing, and this was a process. First there was, we couldn't get the financing if I didn't, wasn't on camera. Very hard, these, these movies. Now, there's a great movie called Freedom on Fire, which is a, a companion piece to Winter on Fire by Evgeny Evanuski, who was nominated for the Academy Award for Winter on Fire about the Maidan Revolution. And, and he, he, he hasn't been able to get a distributor for this thing because these kinds of films are very difficult right now. I think he just showed it at the Vatican to the Pope, and hopefully some traction will come off of that. But So for us to get this thing done required me being in it. Then, you know, to, I, I felt like, there again, it was saying, what's the value added? And of course, I can be mocked in whatever way, but I do think we were really successful despite in the truth of how people can benefit from this thing by offering myself to it in a way that is kind of like it's kind of one of the so like I say here I get I've, get, I've gotten access to people and things that I know wouldn't have come without my day job supporting that 
and financially as well as in terms of access to people. And that normally, though it might not seem it to people because it gets covered, I have tried to avoid covering those trips and what I'm actually doing. And I thought, this time, I'm going to let people come with me. And in the editing, it was really important to me. I was, you know, I make it clear. I have opinions. Big surprise. You've been dipping your toe back into acting again. And you did say five years ago, I'm not in love with that anymore, about acting. Are you falling a bit back in love with it again? Well, I had an experience that uh, surprised me. Yeah, I did a movie called daddy with Dakota Johnson, uh, directed and written by a woman named Christy Hall. And it was kind of a gift of a piece, just re- really wonderfully written thing. And uh, <laughs> I hate admitting this part of it, but it was all run by women. Better than other jobs I'd been on. Really? <laughs> and, uh, and... You sound surprised, sure. <laughs> no, just... You know, embittered of my original intent to be, uh, you know, misogynist my whole life. What do you think of the current world we live in where people no longer want to say what a woman is for fear of being cancelled? I can't, I'm bored with it. I think, I think, let's talk about that when people aren't being vaporized on the front lines of, of wars. And, you know, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I'll, I'll stay out of judgment on it, but I'm not engaged in the conversation. It just seems, um, not like the priority. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was the very sad death of Matthew Perry because you appeared in several episodes of Friends and he oh, suffered well. from a lot of addiction issues. He, he wrote an incredible book about it, one of the most powerful books I've read. You, what, your son Hooper had addiction issues and you talked about that. He said you saved his, his life. Your thoughts about Matthew? What a talented guy. I can't claim to have known him well, but I liked him very much. I saw him somewhat recently, and we were both catching a flight out of Los Angeles Airport, and I you know, complimented him on um, what I knew of his book. I hadn't read the book. I had seen sev- several of his interviews, and he seemed to be talking about it, had confronted it, and, and, and was very intelligent and, and, and you know, bold about it and, and, and generously offering his experience to people to be helpful. Um, it's, tra- it's, it's tragic. I can't say that I was terribly surprised. I, I don't know what the whole coroner's report things and everything, but I know he had done a lot of damage to his organs over the years. And, um, you know, tough, tough situation. And, you know, he got to do that. He got to leave that tail behind and he, he he got to give a lot of joy to a lot of people with his talent and so you know uh, I wish his family well I've tried to maintain the highest standards of journalism for this interview because you said recently I still don't like journalism that focuses on what toilet paper celebrities use <laughs> out of interest what, what toilet paper do you use? I've got a rule of Putin face paper <laughs> Have you really? Yeah, somebody <laughs> gave it to me, yeah. <laughs> you see, sometimes it's those questions that get the best <laughs> answers. Um, and the other thing I couldn't help but notice, because you turned up with her here, is you have a new lady in your life, Olga, and she's Ukrainian. Hmm. How, did you, how did you guys meet? <laughs> um, my good luck. <laughs> she's here. She is. Shall I, shall I get her in to ask? No. <laughs> uh, but you're happy. Yeah, very happy. Sean, it's good to see you again. Great to see you. Let's not leave us alone this time.